is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for political talk, try somewhere else. Hot Talk, another channel. But if you're looking for stories, that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And recently, our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, brought us a very strange report about a very strange law in the state of Wisconsin. And we like to report on what's going on in the states. You won't hear a lot of D.C. and New York and L.A. talk here. And that, there's a reason for that. And by the way, those cities are filled with people who are from everywhere else, too. So it was about time we started talking about what's going on in the large swath of this country called flyover country. Well, it was so strange we felt compelled to do a second installment. installment and here's Alex. Last week, we heard about some strange news reports like this one. Curiosity leads to large crowds in Mobile's Crichton community. Many of you bring binoculars, camcorders, even camera phones to take pictures. To me, it looked like a leprechaun to me. I got to do look up in a tree. Who else in the leprechaun say yeah? yeah! Eyewitnesses say the leprechaun only comes out at night. If you shine a light in its direction, it suddenly disappears. And then the strangest one of them all. Low prices are part of the Meyer business model, but are they too low? The company says it's never encountered this type of situation in any other state where it operates. Low prices that are too low? Our brains and our wallets were so unsettled that we had to find out what on earth was going on here and whether we were still even on the planet Earth. And so we asked an expert, the president of a think tank called the McIver Institute. And more importantly, Brett Healy is a Wisconsin resident and expert shopper. Wisconsin's minimum markup law is a relic from the distant past. It was originally passed back in 1939, and essentially the law makes it illegal for retailers and wholesalers to sell merchandise at a discount. But it's not just Meyer and their customers who are affected. Today, we hear about Walmart. We did an analysis of Walmart flyers from Milwaukee, Chicago, and Minneapolis during the back-to-school days when so many retailers are offering low prices uh, in an attempt to convince you to come to their store to buy your back-to-school supplies. And what we found was that the minimum markup law in Wisconsin is having a real impact on Wisconsinites, and it's, it's a costly one. Elmer Glue Sticks in Chicago went for 50 cents a pop during the back-to-school sales in Milwaukee because of the minimum markup law, that glue, same glue stick had to be sold for $1.25. So that's a 150% increase uh, thanks to the minimum markup law. We saw the same sort of prices for other items like markers and notebooks. In each of these situations, you're seeing a 50 to 70% markup on the cost of back-to-school supplies. Oh, back to school, back to school, to prove to dad that I'm not a fool. I got my lunch packed up, my boots tied tight. I hope I don't get in a fight. He was pretty somber there, but Adam Sandler got really riled up when we told him about his prescription drugs. Walmart has a very popular uh, generic prescription drug program where they sell for four dollars 350 different drugs uh in wisconsin however they're not able to sell all of those drugs at that four dollar price all right! 
Why? Because of the minimum markup laws, a certain number of, of the drugs here in Wisconsin are required to be sold at $8. Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday! Which is a 100% increase over what people in other states are getting their drugs for. You blew it! In this area alone, Wisconsinites are being charged up to $35 million more a year for prescription drugs. Will you give me a break one time? This isn't some esoteric debate in ivory towers. This is a, a, a public policy issue that has an impact on real Wisconsinites, and it's costing them big money out of their checkbooks. Ah! You sick! You sick! Why would you do that? Adam Sandler, he speaks and he screams. Do you understand me? On behalf of the rest of us, Walmart is now closing four locations in the state of Wisconsin. The state's minimum markup law may have had something to do with it. To what degree, we'll never know. And yet those most affected by the law might not even be the big retailers like Walmart or Meyer, or even Wisconsin consumers. It might be the very small businesses who claim they need the law to protect their higher profit margins. With the advance of the internet and uh, people becoming more and more comfortable purchasing their products through the internet, People are going to turn to the internet more and more to get the lowest prices. In the age of the internet, fewer folks will go to these mom and pop shops with prices that they know are higher. And we won't because of the minimum markup law. Families like Brett's know that they can often get better prices for the very same goods online. My family is a perfect example of that. My wife loves Walmart.com. We get a box every two or three days at the house through the mail from Walmart.com of the everyday household products that we use the best price possible. The mom and pop shops, the Myers, the Walmarts all should be given a chance to compete freely, to fight to be the best they can be in the marketplace. And as consumers, for us to spend our own money freely. If more Wisconsinites knew about the minimum markup law and knew that there was bureaucrats being paid with their tax dollars whose sole job is to prevent them from getting the best price possible on their products, I think they'd be outraged. And so I think the more we talk about this issue, uh, the more and more people are going to wake up and demand that this antiquated 1939 law be changed. And hopefully we can unleash the true power of competition here in Wisconsin and do away with the minimum markup law. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Great job on that, Alex, and you can't make it up. And, and by the way, Walmart, I just looked it up because it's an amazing number. They save the average American family $2,500 a year with their discounts. You know, and in some places, folks, that's real money. Like in my household and everyone here at this show. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We bring you the kind of stories that affect your pocketbook, the kind of stories that affect your lives. And you can see or hear all of it on OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after this.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for one of our favorite regular segments, the American Dreamers series. And it's brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network who work hard to effectuate policies that help small businesses grow. And by the way, the American dream, that's what it's really all about. That's who most of us identify with, the little guy, the little girl, trying to grow their businesses, trying to do their thing. And so the folks at Job Creators Network, well, they do just that, fighting for the 100 million people in this country who either own a small business or work for a small business. And today's story is about a man named Jim Bookwald, a man that you may not know, but you'll be grateful that you do when we're done. Jim is the founder of Ariel Corporation, the world's largest manufacturer of separable reciprocating gas compressors, which our own Alex Cortez will dive into during his sit-down conversation with Jim. But of course, Alex started with, well, Jim's start, which was of the more inauspicious variety. I tried to get Jim to talk about one of his earliest failures in life during his initial career path as a teacher, and I met some resistance. Okay, best left ignored. But I pointed out just how important this failure is. Jim just didn't magically float to the top of his fields, and he agreed. Uh, This was not my finest hour. The, the, the first job was, was because I just couldn't decide what to do. Uh, I ended up majoring in, uh, in history because I, I'm a reader. Uh, that, was, that was no major at all. There was no effort involved. Uh, although I, I have to admit that uh, most of the textbooks are pretty boring. I've acquired a lot more historical knowledge reading, whatever, whatever interest it be. But yes, I, I taught school. I was young. Clueless of 21. I mean, I was a veteran of World War II at the age of 18. <laughs> and I looked like I was younger than some of the 11th and 12th graders. And I couldn't maintain discipline. Didn't know how. Simple as that. Jim expands upon the episode in his book, writing, I lasted just one semester, having been dumped into a number of the school's problem classes. The superintendent made a mistake throwing me in there. But he also did me a favor in removing me from the wrong profession with a minimum amount of wasted time. Uh, Talk about your dad. You know, you, you tell the story of the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. Your, your dad saying this. Could you mind telling that story? Well, well, okay. When I came back, my father actually did mention killing the fatted calf. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't mention the prodigal son, but I was sufficiently educated <laughs> to know that that's exactly what he had in mind. He was decent about it, but he couldn't help just getting just getting a, a knife little, in there a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, uh, you're supposed to be successful and go out and make your living, and here, here I was back home, flat, busted, and poor again. <laughs> But he did meet his wife, Maureen, during this period, and they married. She was 19, and he was only 21. So, heck, everything does happen for a reason. And Jim went on to try another gig. Finally managed to uh, land a job as a banker, a teller, actually, <clears throat> so that we could afford to get married. And she, she moved to Cleveland and 
and we rented a third floor. A pretty dangerous place now that I think about it. There was only one exit, and it was unless you went out the window and, and banged off the second story porch roof. <laughs> but nonetheless, we're, that's where we were, and uh, that was wonderful. And then uh, I realized that I needed to move on. Again, I was inappropriately located. I'm not a, a bank teller. <laughs> okay, <laughs> two careers down. How many to go, Jim? So we decided it was, it was time to look at uh, getting a, an education in something that I can enjoy doing. Oh, back to school, back to school to prove to Dad that I'm not a fool. All right, enough of Billy Madison. Back to Jim Bookwald. So I started out in the, uh, in the physics department. We're, we're still dealing with a fellow who hasn't decided yet what he oh, yeah. is. Uh, and a, a year or so in physics, I realized this is not my cup of tea. And really, really, mechanical engineering ought to be fun. And I was, I guess, 25 before I really knew that. And it was fun. I enjoyed it. It was just, I, I soaked it up. And you've talked about how you were really ignoring God's calling for you for a long time. And it, it, even kind of going back as a kid, you talk about seeing this ditch digger with your, your grandfather. Mm-hmm. Talk about how you were kind of ignoring God's calling for you, for, and as you put it in your words. Well, uh, what, what is there to say? I, uh, <laughs> uh, that's a toughie. Uh, uh, I, I had lofty notions. I thought I was going to be an astronomer. I thought that I would be, because I had the mind for it, I thought I'd be helping to crack the secrets of the universe. And I really did. I I assumed that's where I was going. My schooling was so spotty, primarily because I was bored, uh, but uh, it was spotty enough so that that was not going to be a profession for me. And as I said, I discovered this late in life. Most of my friends knew all about nuts and bolts and uh, types of threads uh, and... uh, and a lot of other stuff, a, a great deal of it wrong, but nonetheless, they, they knew a lot. I didn't. I, I didn't really discover that sort of thing till a little bit in school and, and until I got my first job as an engineer. And I, I realized I was in the right place. Jim found a great job. And one thing is for certain, his bride deserves a medal for going down this winding journey with him. Talk about your appreciation for Marine, you know, being willing to work so you can go back to school. You know, can't pay her enough compliment. Uh, uh, that was, uh, I was, that was a, a, a generous thing, but it was, it was a wise move. She and I <laughs> decided that this is what we needed to do. And uh, I realized on my first job, which was really a, a great company. It was called Cooper Bessemer, and it was in Mount Vernon, Ohio. And they built really big machinery, beautiful big engines and uh, impressive stuff. And the kind of thing you could be proud of if you were part of that company, you could think, boy, look at what we just produced. And that was great, but uh, it turns out that since I had to do it all over again, I was five years behind my contemporaries, and there was nowhere to go. And, and there wasn't really enough work to go around, enough good, interesting work. 
And Ralph Boyer, uh, the chief engineer, was a collector. It, <laughs> he just hired engineers, and he could get away with it. <laughs> but now that Jim found his calling in life, he wasn't going to just sit around and be collected. No, 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 no. So he left. His mentor from Cooper Bessemer, a guy by the name of Bob Ramsey, got him work at another company named White Superior as the lead designer of a compressor, a pretty cool mechanical device that increases the pressure of a gas by reducing its volume. But there was one teeny weeny problem with this whole thing. You know, Bob basically presented to them as, you know, you're the guy to design a compressor, and yet you had never designed a compressor before. Is that right? That's about the size of it. I mean, talk, talk through that. I mean, what were you thinking? What was he thinking? You get the job that's even scarier in terms of what's next? Uh, that is almost inexplicable. But I didn't worry about it. I knew I could do it. I'm not, I'm not kidding. I, uh, uh, I was 30 years old. And when you're 30, you're solid brass. You can, <laughs> you can do anything. And uh, I did a good job. It was a very successful piece of machinery. I had some help, too. I learned from everybody. Uh, of course, I had to. <laughs> yeah. And uh, by the time I'd been there for the seven years, I, I had learned my trade. Uh, I designed beautiful machinery. And so it was time to start his own company. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about Jim Bookwald's story here on our American Dreamers segment. The winding detours, the mistakes he made. It doesn't all happen overnight, folks. None of this is ever smooth. There are lots of risks, lots of failures. And by the way, to pass on all of the life lessons that you've heard Jim Buckwell talk about, well, he started writing a bunch of letters to his grandson, Alex, 45 of them in total, and which later formed the basis of Jim's remarkable book, Letters to Alex. And after the break, Jim Buckwald's story continues here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we continue with our American Dreamers series brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, and we're back with Alex's conversation with Jim Bookwald, the founder of Ariel Corporation. Ariel's compressors are used by the global energy industry to extract, process, transport, store, and distribute natural gas from wells. To all of us. Thank you, Ariel. But it began just as an idea, and Jim's big idea was to build smaller, high-speed compressors, a market that the mammoth industry players couldn't figure out how to turn a profit on and gave up on. And like almost every successful entrepreneur, Jim's goal, as strange as it might sound, was not to make money 
most of these wealthy people don't become wealthy by focusing on getting wealthy. Sam Walton never had a dream of being wealthy. He had a dream yeah. of being the best store that he could, and that was merely a byproduct of it. So it's, good good for you. You have discovered that. That's something that people don't understand. Most of the people that I encounter are distributors, just people in the oil and gas business. Uh, the companies that are alive and going are almost always built by somebody who says, by God, I'll show them how it's done. Bunch of clowns don't know what they're doing. Let's, let's build this and do it right. The money must come along later, as you find out, in order to build the business to, to keep it running. You, you, can't, you can't continue to lose money or even break even. That's, uh, that's not good enough. And that's exactly what happened to Ariel in its infancy. But before we get there, his old man, the same guy who compared him to the prodigal son, told him this after hearing about Jim's plan to go in business with a few other partners. My father's last good advice to his son was, don't form a partnership. And he quoted his law professor. He went to night law school. See, we weren't rich people. <laughs> but he went to night law school, and the, this, uh, this teacher said, a partnership is two damn fools agreeing to pay each other's bills. Don't form a partnership. So we formed a corporation, and it, it, was, it was better. And nobody could get mad and take his marbles from the game. They're, they're in there. But first, they had to get some marbles. It took Jim and his partners 10 whole months to scrounge together $10,500 just to get going. In his book, Jim notes that Maureen agreed to mortgage their house, which was pretty much all that they had to make it happen. Writing, her position on the subject was that we had just gone to the trouble and expense of getting me a degree in mechanical engineering so that I would always be able to get a good job. We could buy another house if I failed and had to start over. Gosh, and money wasn't the only hurdle. Time actually might have been the bigger hurdle for most folks. It took them two years just to build a good prototype. At one point, they couldn't find a single supplier who could make a particular part that they needed. So Jim decided to teach himself how to be a machinist too. Why not? So that he can make it, and he did. And Jim went four whole years without a salary. Maureen's work, providing for them both all of those years. I, I have to say something that sounds like, like bragging, but I was there, and I happen to know it's true. <laughs> I said, I never lost confidence, never lost hope. Uh, every company that's starting from small size that has a big fight on its hands has to have at least one person who thinks that we can make it. And I assigned myself that job without really knowing it. It was just a case of, of getting each thing done. And each thing adds up. They finally have their prototype, and they sold it. Life couldn't be better. But suddenly, they're confronted with something that they just hadn't thought about. Tell me about operating capital. You, you write funnily in the book about not knowing what it was <laughs> and being forced to discover what it was. And... 
we were, after all, engineers. We had no right to not know these things or not be painfully aware of them, but I think, in general, that's exactly how we felt. We thought if we made a little profit on the, on the compressor, we're in business, we're good. It was only when we got that first one built and shipped that we realized that you needed a thing called operating capital because you aren't going to get paid right away. And now if you have to wait till you're paid, it's going to take you a long time to build number two. So you need operating capital, even though you're going to be making a profit. You can't do that unless you can buy the castings and the forgings and the bar stock and, and, and all of those things. And we discovered along the way that that's something we needed. And they got it. And they would be off to the races and grew to having a lot of employees, which was great. But when you have a lot of employees, you're also very susceptible to a lot of firings when you hit economic slumps. In the 80s, brought a roller coaster of highs and lows to Ariel. And as a guy not personally focused on money too much, you delayed those firings as long as possible, whereas a lot of other people would have done it sooner. These were people I'd consider them my friends. I didn't see how we were going to do it. One of my partners was the guy that had to do with the shop people, and when it came time to tell him the whole story, I, I couldn't find him, <laughs> and, and rightfully so. I needed to do that. Nobody else should do that, and, and it, was, it was tough. Especially in a small town, you write about in the book to have these three firing oh, yeah. phases happening. And, you know, when people believe, are you a good employer? Am I going to go work for these people? And they've done this three Some of them never before. come back. Yeah. Strangely enough, those I, I do too much strangely stuff. But some of the guys went over to Cooper Bessemer, and that failed them. They, they moved out of town, and there are no jobs there at all. And Ariel Corporation has got good jobs. We are uh, the premier manufacturing company. There's no doubt about that. And this reputation precedes Ariel because of the culture that they've cultivated. And this unique company that the culture created was something that Jim believed he could never sell, as many founders do, to reap the rewards of all that they've built. You said something, it was my company, but then it became not my company. It became, I mean, talk about that. I think that was such a, a beautiful, obviously it's not just a sentiment that makes it sound too shallow, but a beautiful belief. And that, that's another thing just happens to you. Um, uh, and I, I was unaware of it. And I did not think long and hard, but I think I realized at the time that they, the company had become an entity. Uh, it wasn't that big, but it become, had become an entity, and I had, was a servant of the company. I can't, I can't describe, describe how I, I, I didn't make a sudden change or anything. It was just a realization that the company was more important than I was. Um, and and it, it was a, a going entity, and, and with the right driving forces and the right strategy, it was going to be a big, strong company. Uh, so, again, that, uh, 
it wasn't some noble sacrifice. It was just a, an acknowledgement, my quietly, in the in the recesses of my mind, that uh, that this is where we this is where we are now. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Jim Bookwald's story, the founder of Ariel Corporation. By the way, when he says, I was a servant of the company, the company was more important than I was. You'll hear this from a lot of founders, a lot. Side to the story of American business life you don't know or hear anywhere here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and we return to our American Dreamers segment Jim Bookwald founder of Ariel Corporation and our own Alex Cortez the Ariel practice philosophy has to do with how we deal with a lot of different entities customer is one and everybody knows that you hear the the, uh, the jabber about we're a customer-driven company. So what? You know, what does that mean? Well, it means a whole list of things. You never lie to the customer. You don't sell him something that he shouldn't be getting. And if something goes wrong, you remember that it's your name on the top cover, not somebody else's. It's always yours. Always your responsibility. If there are things that fail that shouldn't have failed, never mind the warranty has run out. That should not have broken. I will take care of it. And there have been very, very difficult circumstances. When, uh, one, I kind of set the tone with that particular case. One of our um, distributors had cut it pretty close on sizing up a two-cylinder machine. That was a fundamental mistake. But the same day I understood this, I said, we'll replace it. And by moving rapidly, we got the customer to pitch in and help. We got the distributor who did bum jump to pitch in and help. And before you knew it, we had a good product out there and happy, happy oil company or gas company. But the point is that it established a practice. Fortunately, most of our competitors, they're run by people with brains and minds of accountants. You know, and you, oh, that's going to hurt the bottom line. And I've so often have said, no, you're standing too close to the bottom line. Back off a little bit. You'll see that money spent here will benefit the company. And uh, that's hard for that's hard standing for some people. Too close to the line. That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and just focusing on part of it. It was ridiculous. If if you do it that way, and refuse to take care of the customer, tell them it's your fault, that sort of thing. You've opened a festering sore. And you eventually have to spend the money, and probably more money, and the customer will always hate you. And you'll lose customers yeah, going oh, forward. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lousy outfit. I don't know that, well, that Worthington's gone, and, and this was true. Years ago, I met a fellow on it, uh, Standard of Cal. Chevron, you know, that standard of Cal. He said, I don't know why the subject came up, but 
in a very definitive voice, he said, Standard of Cal will never buy another Worthington. Well, you know, well, I got the story. One of Worthington's big pipeline machines, and it was a really interesting two-stroke cycle, trick thermodynamics. And, you know, it's kind of like, boy, that is a swell idea. Well, it may have been a swell idea, but they didn't work very well. And they fussed with them and tried and tried. And finally, Worthington said to Standard of Cal, they're your engines. So long. <laughs> well, that, they just lost a very large customer. And, and we're not in a business This where, where people don't know everybody. It turns out that even if they are competitors, mostly they exchange stories, they meet, they drink together, they talk together, they go to meetings together. The word gets around if you're a bad company. So, A bad company, but at the time, one many times larger than Ariel. And one that once directly threatened Jim and Ariel. When I show people through the shop, I say, this right here is where those guys said, said this. There were three, three men from Worthington, and they said in clear English and without uh, any modification at all, uh, they didn't write it down, but they said fairly precisely, if you don't sell the company to us, we will copy your product line and put you out of business. I was safe in putting that in the book. We've talked to lawyers about things like that. That actually happened. And the guy that said it is gone. He's gone to his reward in heaven, so uh, he can't sue us. But it's the truth. It's how it happened. And I didn't say anything to him. In fact, I did my dumb act. And uh, they went away thinking they finally got me nailed. And uh, that night, before I went home, I rolled up the drawings of the next machine we were going to build and it would be the biggest machine we'll ever build because we decided that those big guys were out there and we could compete with them. So we'll stick with the smaller machines because that's what we're good at and that's why they wanted to buy us. I rolled up those drawings and the next morning I said to my people, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to build a bigger machine and I think we can get it on the market before they can copy our product line and we're going to go after them where they live. And that, You've heard that term, and I use that term. We are going to go after them where they live. And I started the next day. I was doing calculations and starting, the, starting work on a bigger machine to go head-to-head with them. And boy, that machine was wonderful. We sold thousands of those things. It's interesting how, rather than allowing them to go on the offensive against you, you going on the offensive against them made them go on defense and them not have the capacity to go on offense against you. Yeah, for some reason, they they stood still and we took the business away from them. A matter of two or three years, we were were king of the mountain. You have a lot of confidence all throughout the book. You know, you write about how uh, inferior the other company's products are and how superior your guys, and you speak with a way of confidence. Obviously, it's it's well-earned, but... Talk about that. You, do, your, do you think your competitors have read the book and what they're thinking in their head? Uh, they may read the book if they wish. I think they are horribly burdened by those, those people who have the accountant's mentality. When I see some of the things they do, how they treat their customers, kind of goofy things they build and try to compete with us, most of those companies 
have built one or two different things they called an aerial killer. <laughs> and uh, they come and go. But the thing that I, I like about our competitors is that they, they treat their customers like dirt. And that's that bookkeeper mentality again. And as long as they do dumb things like that, we're, we're going to be okay. <laughs> and maybe they will read the book. <laughs> and like most good things in life, they come to an end. And so did Jim's time at Ariel. But unfortunately, he kind of wasn't the one to decide that time was up. In a way, the IRS decided it for him. I knew that if I stayed in and held the power and held on to the stock, that when I died, there'd be something like a, depending on the year it was, but could be up to 55% death duties. The government's death tax where they first tax your money when you're alive, and then again, when you're dead. 55% of, of somebody else's assessment of how much the company's worth would kill it. So it was time for me to pass it on as much as I could. Talk about how destructive that is, though. I mean, you're, you're this wildly you know, creative you know, person and, and a great leader of this company, and and government policy is, is forcing people to give up something that they're great at. Yeah, yeah they, most of those laws are resentful and begrudging, and that certainly is one. I had to stay away because there might be in some danger of me still running the company if I, if I showed up. Uh, I had to stay away for 10 years. They changed that finally, but they didn't grandfather me in. I still had to stay away for 10 years. But the point was the company survived. I probably, after all, I'm in my 90th year, I probably would have retired by now. You're on your 90th year? Yeah. Holy smokes. Well, I mean, yeah, You're 89 well, right now? Yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. So I, I probably would have showed enough sense to, <laughs> to pack it in at some place. But, I, but we'd have stayed a lot longer. Maureen was really annoyed that we had to re retire. And I don't blame her. She was doing a good job. See? Yeah, and... Uh, she enjoyed the responsibility and the, and the, the daily battle, <laughs> and, uh, but it is something we had to do. Jim's daughter Karen has since run Ariel and has led its dramatic growth, which produced a tripling of the number of people that they employ. And they're now preparing for Karen's son, Alex whom Jim wrote all of those letters to, to run the company. Is it really a family policy that you gotta go, as Alex jokes, you have to go screw up somewhere first before you can come to Ariel? Well, it is now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. I didn't do a good job with Kurt. Jim's son. Because he horsed me around for so long. But um, Karen, Karen did that, did that right. Alex went to work for Caterpillar. Alex did a really good job in the Caterpillar Houston office. And I sent him to Singapore. He sold into China and Indonesia and all kinds of places like that. And then they finally sent him down to Brisbane, Australia. So Alex had a, a wealth of knowledge. And the last thing he did really went south. And I, I told Karen, well, that's good. She was really annoyed. <laughs> Oh, it's not good. <laughs>
And great job as always, Alex. The story of Jim Bookwald, Ariel Corporation. By the way, it sounds like Ariel is in good hands, which is an incredible thing. Only, well, half of all companies survive their first five years. Only a third will survive the first ten. Moreover, few family businesses make it to the second generation. 70% fail, and by the third generation, 88% fail. Not Ariel. American Dreamer's story, Jim Buckwald's story, Ariel Corporation's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American stories and the Thanksgiving story, well, you're about to hear it for the hour. It didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the New World began hundreds of years before this inauguration. What you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hear the Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This, is, uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey lurkey do and turkey lurkey dap. I eat that turkey and I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting, family, and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? That I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. under the flag of religion. 
Then said the Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things. Double vengeance unto them At least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right that they pray to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without Terrafin. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation 
that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The Church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass, to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, Another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again. But where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. Where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean 
this is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, people were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell. And this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a, a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine, in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures, fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves, after our tears, with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then, with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers. They were not emissaries of a foreign government. They were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. 
He is so moved by the pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days and then to their shock and dismay, the speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after, the speedwell has trouble. The master of the speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, it was judged that the speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage, upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org.
This is Our American Story, celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the Pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough-and-tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stocking beef farmer going to America. <laughs> you see that quail, kixie-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty, he would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the Alex. The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to, you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic, and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease, and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. But their jubilation quickly dims 
as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been blazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing, but the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak, they are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! Indian coming. With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind, and then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, Have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then. Just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. 
He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's if we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves, who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. 
The table is set and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few weak and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. Amen. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, these first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair, it's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Wherefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. 
and he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? Yeah. It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific, Gee, the traffic is terrific. Oh, Today in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time and a holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety. They stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television. Everything is wonderful and it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think the people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home. For the holidays you 
And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon But it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. And we share it with you here on Our American Stories.